wondered how taboo, shame, and lack of good sexual education have stripped away elements of pleasure in childbirth and parenting that are essential to loving, intimate relationships? Join me for another episode of Orgasmic Birth Podcast, Pleasure in Pregnancy, Birth, and Parenting, as we break down and heal barriers and open the door to more love and intimacy in birth and life. you learn about the hormones of love, sex, and childbirth? Do you know how you can help your hormones to flow for a gentle, pleasurable birth? Hi, I'm Deborah Pascali Bonaro, founder and director of Orgasmic Birth and host of the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. Today, we're joined by a friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Buckley. She's trained as a GP family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics. She's been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997 and is the author of the internationally best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Othering. She has a special interest in the hormones of physiological labor and birth and the impacts of interventions. In 2015, she completed an extensive report. I always say it's really required reading for all my doulas and parents too on this topic called The Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection in the U.S. She's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland researching oxytocin in labor and birth and the impacts of maternity care interventions. She's co-authored several papers on oxytocin in labor, birth, and breastfeeding. Sarah is also the mother of four children, all born at home and now in their teenage years and beyond. She lives on the semi-rural outskirts of Brisbane. Welcome, Sarah. It's such an honor to have you join us today. Thank you, Deborah, and beautiful to be here and lovely to be talking to all the mummers and families and partners and all the doulas out there. Thank you for supporting um, families and birth. Well, I have to say you've given birth to four children at home and being a physician. So I have to ask, how did your choices for your birth impact your interest to study the hormones of childbirth? That's a good question, Deborah. So yes, I went through my family physician training and my hospital training and my obstetrics in hospital. And then I was really fortunate to support two friends having their babies at home. And I looked at the home birth experience and I looked at the hospital experience and I thought, oh, that home birth experience looks pretty good. And actually it turns out that both my parents were born at home as well. So it's not so far out from my family, although my father's an obstetrician. But what actually happened, what really interested me was with my first baby, I was living in a small house in the inner city Melbourne and my neighbor had three children and she lent us a bassinet, like a cradle to put the baby in. And I had the nursery set up. And then I had this beautiful and quite unexpectedly fast home birth. You can read all about it in Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And once my baby was in my arms, gosh, I wouldn't have her more than an arm's length away. And I could tell that my brain had actually gone from that direction to like 180 degrees, completely in a different direction. And I could literally feel that my brain had changed in those five hours of labor. And I thought, whoa, what was that? Like something phenomenal had happened. And, you know, I carried that with me into my mothering. Like I co-slept, like I kept my baby with me. I carried my baby around, all things that were 
kind of culturally out of step and certainly not how I was raised. And I went on and had the same kind of experiences with my other three children. And I was really curious, like what had happened to my brain? And so I started looking at the hormones of labor and birth. I was influenced by Michelle O'Donnell particularly, and then all the research now about oxytocin. And I came to understand that the hormonal processes of labor and birth are actually designed to change our brains. And it happens in other species as well, not just humans, but for women, actually, there's things that happen in our brains from those peaks of hormones and especially, you know, well-documented with the peaks of oxytocin um, that happen in the brain during labor and birth. So fascinating, right? I mean, really thinking about that, you felt that so much, right? And, you know, those that are listening, I'm sure those that have given birth really felt that altered state. So you've done such extensive work around the hormones. And I know for a lot of people, they're even like the hormones of birth. What is that? Can you give everyone a little overview? How do you explain that to someone who's just learning about this? Well, a good um, perspective to take is looking at evolution because we are the we are mammals. We have mammary glands. We suckle our young, and we have these common ancestors through 165 million years of mammalian evolution. So the way that humans give birth is very similar to the way lots of anim- other animals, mammals, give birth. And if you think about, you know, what I was talking about, I mean, dogs, cats, elephants—they don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their babies, right? Um, it has to kick in straight away after birth. So part of what I'm describing with those changes in the brain is something that happens to make sure that every mammalian mother gives birth to not just gives birth successfully but then takes care of her baby successfully so that their offspring are you know the mothers are motivated and rewarded to give that dedicated care that every mammalian newborn needs so that's part of it the kind of the evolution the other part is we are placental mammals like we suckle our young <laughs> we, we give and we give birth to live new large large mammals as opposed to marsupials over here in australia which is a different birth process but through that process of giving birth to large, live, young, but they have to come out through our uterus, through our cervix, through our vaginas, like every other mammal. So there has to be a way to make birth happen, to make it effective. And, you know, it has been effective for all of our mammalian cousins, for all of our foremothers as well. That's why we're here today. So I guess the foundation of hormonal physiology is that birth is designed to be successful. Birth has evolved to be successful. And by the way, if evolution doesn't make sense to you, you could say you could call it God's perfect design because whatever it is, we're perfectly designed for a successful labor and birth. And what the hormones do is enact a successful labor and birth, but not only that labor and birth is successful for mother and baby, but also, as I mentioned, that the bonding and the caretaking is successful through these changes in the brain. But the other part of it um, for all mammals is that lactation or breastfeeding has to be successful. So the hormones facilitate successful birth, successful bonding and successful breastfeeding. I call it mother nature's superb of, of making sure that all those things happen, of facilitating these processes. They also, through these peaks of labor, of, of oxytocin and all the hormones in labor and birth actually feel good. So you can read that about in my um, ecstatic birth ebook, I mean, orgasmic birth. You know, many women have had this experience of coming out of labor and birth and going, whoa, that was so good. Can I do it again? Or maybe not that minute, but maybe, you know, the next day that was phenomenal, you know, because through these processes of labor and birth, it powerfully activates our pleasure and reward centers. So we're actually rewarded for having babies. <laughs> so Mother Nature wants us to have lots of babies. So all of these optimizing of birth, optimizing of breastfeeding, optimizing of bonding is 
for reproductive success, but it also is designed to make birth a positive experience for mothers and for babies, actually, because they have some of the same hormonal changes um, through labor and birth as well. So successful birth, successful bonding, successful breastfeeding, and it feels good. What a good recipe. A great recipe, right? So what are the hormones? Can you talk a little bit about oxytocin, right? That's our main hormone of love there. Tell us about it and how it works. Yes, well, I've had the incredible privilege of the last five years working in my PhD studying oxytocin, particularly with some of the world experts in this area. So that's really what I've done the most research on recently. And it kind of encapsulates the whole thing because oxytocin is a hormone of birth, as you may have heard of. It's our favorite birth hormone, but it's also a hormone of bonding in all mammals. If they don't have oxytocin, they don't bond with their babies. And it's also a hormone of breastfeeding. So it's a, a multi-purpose hormone. And you may have also heard of oxytocin outside side of childbirth because it's a feel-good hormone. You know, there's so much research happening outside childbirth where, you know, oxytocin makes you feel good, makes you trust people. It's been called the hormone of trust, hormone of monogamy, the moral molecule even, because it affects our interactions with each other. It's a social affiliative hormone. But in the context of labor and birth, it's actually made in the center part of our brain called the limbic system. It's made in a gland called the hypothalamus stored in the pituitary gland, and then we release it into the body during labor and birth. And what happens during labor and birth is we release it in pulses from the pituitary gland. And as we release it from the pituitary gland, it travels in the bloodstream to the uterus. And when it gets to the uterus, it meets the oxytocin receptors, which I'll mention in a minute, and causes the uterus to contract more effectively. And that's actually what its name means. Oxy means fast, tosin means birth. So it Physically, it makes birth go faster. It's what facilitates. It doesn't actually totally cause. It's not the only cause of, but it facilitates the rhythmic contractions of labor. And if you've had a baby, you know they start small, get bigger and bigger, and in the end become virtually unstoppable. And I'll come back to that as well. But so oxytocin during labor and birth, that's in the body. But also at the same time, and this is why oxytocin can be such a feel-good hormone because it's also released into the brain. So as it's released into the brain, it kind of filters out, it modulates, it's called a neuromodulator, lots of processes in the brain. And one of them that it powerfully affects or switches on is those reward and pleasure centers that we talked about, the dopamine centers in the brain. So basically what that does during labor and birth is it switches on the attachment systems for mothers and babies. And it means that when the mother gives birth, she has the these extreme levels of oxytocin in her brain, this powerful reward and pleasure center activation. And she meets her babies for the first time. We're talking all mammals here, right? She meets her babies for the first time. And so her babies become intrinsically a source of reward and pleasure for her. And that's that's ecstatic birth, that's orgasmic birth. That's why it can feel so good from this release inside the brain. Now, going back to what happens in the body, so it travels to the uterus and what it finds is the oxytocin receptor. So every hormone has its own receptor. Um, some actually have several receptors. Some receptors act on several hormones, but oxytocin and its receptor actually kind of monogamous. There's one receptor, one hormone. And the way I look at it, it's like a key and a lock. So the key is oxytocin. The lock is the oxytocin receptor. And when oxytocin finds the lock, the receptors on the outside of the uterine muscle cells, it binds to them. And it basically like turning a key into a lock. It sends a chemical message into the cell saying contract. And just as oxytocin levels go up as labor progresses, they actually are three to four times higher at the end of labor than the beginning of labor, the number of oxytocin receptors actually goes up in the lead up to labor. So that at that onset of labor, the mother's optimally ready for an effective labor and birth. 
by having lots of oxytocin receptors in her uterus, which means that her uterus is going to be very sensitive to oxytocin. And what we found in our research was that the levels of oxytocin at the start, this spontaneous, we say physiological onset of labor, are really quite modest. They're not very high because there's this in, in, incredible increase in the number of receptors. It goes from about 1.8 density to about 3,500 density. So that's how sensitive the mother's uterus is. Wow. And, it, and it really peaks at that onset of labor. And I'll just share an anecdote about that because I actually breastfed through my second pregnancy, my toddler, and every morning she'd come in for a little suckle. That was fine. But the day I went into labor, she came in and had a suckle and I had to literally throw her off because I got such a massive contraction. And that that was really interesting. The day before, no effect. The day I went into labor, a massive effect because of that increased sensitivity that I had to that to that that hormone. So we have that receptor sensitivity amongst a whole lot of other pre-labor preparations. Read chapter two of my hormonal physiology report. It's not just the receptors, it's prostaglandins, it's inflammation, a whole lot of things happen and then lead up to labor to make the mother at that peak of readiness. And by the way, the baby's also at the peak of readiness, but that's another whole story. So that the peak of readiness and then the oxytocin comes in and other hormonal changes and we start to get the buildup of labor. <clears throat> so the way that I describe labor, as I say, it's like a snowball. It starts small, becomes bigger and bigger, and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable. And the reason it becomes virtually unstoppable is because of positive feedback. And I'll describe what I mean by that. But particularly, there's a lot of positive feedback cycles, but one that's very well known is an oxytocin positive feedback cycle. And if, if you want to see the visual of it, go to my um, website, look at my blogs, look at my epidural blog, there's a picture of it. So what happens is that we're releasing oxytocin from the brain down to the uterus and it causes the uterus to contract and that causes sensations. You might have noticed this. So the sensations, especially the baby pushing down, are fed back to the brain by a specific sensory nerve pathway. The sensory nerves is what tells the brain what's going on in the body, right? This is a specific sensory nerve pathway. And during labor and birth, that information by that sensory nerve pathway about the um, sensations in the uterus fed back to the brain tells the, tells the brain to produce more oxytocin. So it's not producing less. It's not a negative feedback to keep things the same. It's a positive feedback. So it tells um, the brain to release more oxytocin. We get more oxytocin released into the bloodstream, to the uterus, stronger contractions, more sensations. As you notice, more oxytocin release. So it's a positive feedback loop. And this is one of the processes that fuels that snowball of labor and labor becomes bigger and bigger and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable you may have noticed that you can't stop it even if you want to at the end of labor and then at that moment of birth we have this intense sensations more sensations more feedback more oxytocin all designed to have a quick and efficient pushing stage and then we know as I said at that peak at that pushing stage Oxytocin levels are three to four times higher than they were, than they, what they were at the start of labor. And then also we have at the, our afterbirth, even higher levels as the baby comes onto the mother's body, the baby's instinctive behaviors, the baby will find the breast, will massage the breast with its hands, will eventually suckle. And all of those things stimulate oxytocin release for the mother. So even from those high levels at birth, she can have levels up to 10 times higher in the hour after birth, which is kind of what makes it this magical hour. You know, they've heard that the magical hour after birth, we call it an early sensitive period because what's happening at that time is 
different to what happens at other times. You know, the mother's body is maximally sensitive to oxytocin in her uterus, probably in her brain as well, maybe even in her breast. There's a whole lot of preparations. The babies also actually has peak oxytocin levels, which I'll talk about in a minute. So they come together and that release of oxytocin that the mother has in response to her baby's behaviors actually saves her life by making sure her uterus contracts up nicely. It also has another effect you may have heard of. It actually causes a, a vasodilation, an opening up of the blood vessels on the mother's chest wall. She can get a flush and that vasodilation literally pulses heat to her baby. And that's why, again, you may have heard of this, why skin to skin is such an effective way of keeping babies warm because the mother literally pulses heat to her baby. And if the baby's a bit cool, the mother's body pulses more heat. If the baby's a bit warmer, the mother's body pulses less heat. There's this interaction we call neutral regulation. So the whole process of oxytocin from the beginning of labor through the, the onset of labor and birth, through the peaks of labor and birth, and then the time after birth, this magical hour after birth, is designed to optimize the effectiveness, the safety of labor and birth for mothers and babies. It's designed to optimize bonding through these in peak of oxytocin in the brain, which not only switch on a pleasure and reward centers, but in human and women, it actually changes personality through these peaks of oxytocin. And then the breastfeeding, because those high peaks of oxytocin in the hour after birth make sure that mother and baby are in this perfect, we say, calm and connection state. That's one of the effects of oxytocin. It makes us relaxed to begin breastfeeding. And of course, it's a hormone of breastfeeding as well. It's a hormone that's released when the baby suckles. So mothers has even more oxytocin, not just in that first hour after birth, but through her whole breastfeeding career, she has these intermittent increases in oxytocin, which had some of those same effects of bonding, of relaxing, of calming, um, a whole lot of other ways that oxytocin facilitates and optimizes the mother's body for breastfeeding as well. It's so fascinating, right? Like as you talk, and I heard you say this, you know, many times before, but I'm still in awe of how the body works and how the body grows these additional receptors, right? And that positive feedback loop. But I also am aware as a doula that sometimes situations make it a little bit more challenging for people to release their own oxytocin. So for those that are listening that are pregnant or partners saying, well, how can I help? How can we ensure a good oxytocin flow? What are some of your suggestions? Well, one, just to start with the basics, again, if we go back to evolution and we look at our mammalian cousins, how do they give birth to ensure their oxytocin is flowing? Because these things are even more critical in the wild, right? Our, our, our birth has evolved in the context of the wild, so birth has to be efficient and can't linger on for a long time, right? So what other um, animals do is they make sure they're in the safest place possible. And in fact, oxytocin can't be released if we don't feel safe. Yeah, so that's that's critical, right? So make sure you're in the safest place possible. And mammalian cuddles also are surround themselves or most of them are social birthers. You know, they surround themselves with a circle of elephant helpers or a dolphin midwife, another female who attends it. Mice have, a, have, a, have another experienced female who helps. Some animals are more solitary birthers. Cats tend to give birth by themselves. They might have noticed this if you have a cat and you kind of wake up the next morning and there's the mother cat licking her babies in the cupboard. But what the animals do is make sure they're in the safest place possible. And from the perspective of our brain, Safe means familiar, yeah? If we're in an unfamiliar place, we don't know if we're safe or not. So making your circumstances as familiar as possible, um, obviously home, you know, 
hormones tend to flow better, like, you know, fewer interventions needed at home. And you may also have this experience of laboring at home and then you move to hospital and everything slows down or stops because you've gone to an unfamiliar place. Your limbic system is going, oh, I don't know if this is safe, you know, the primitive part of your brain. So how can you make that that transition and that hospital space as safe as possible? And some of it comes down to your senses because so the senses tell us what's familiar and what's safe. So taking familiar smells, you know, burying your head in your own pillow, taking your partner's T-shirt, you know, essential oils, whatever smells are familiar to you. A familiar sound, like some women wear um, noise-canceling headphones or play music that they're familiar with so they're not hearing that bustle of the hospital and the beeping of the machines. That's really important. You know, low lights because generally day-living species tend to give birth at night and we give birth under low light conditions generally when our melatonin levels are higher and our adrenaline, our daylight alertness hormones are lower. So, you know, dim light, if you can dim the lights, that will help um, the oxytocin release. And also, you know, if you can be with familiar people. So really that's, that's the number one. How can you have familiar people around you? And, you know, there's a lot of research showing that having your own midwife, one-on-one continuity of midwifery care has so many benefits to that, to the outcomes of labor and birth. And having your own doula has so many benefits to the outcome of labor and birth because you're with someone who's familiar to you. You've known them before. And this is how we've birthed across generations. You know, we've always had someone familiar with us. My great grandmother was a granny midwife in a local community. You know, you had someone from your community that came and helped you at the birth and you didn't have strangers there. So how can we minimize the impact of strangers? Because that's always going to impact our limbic system, our primitive brain to some extent. So, you know, particularly um, staying at home as long as possible, because the other thing is there's positive feedback loops. There is a point in labor and birth, like the snowball, where it becomes unstoppable. So again, having your having a doula with you at home who can help you to know when it's time to go to hospital, when labor has become so big and so unstoppable that that, that transition to hospital isn't gonna isn't going to derail the progress of your labor. So those are some ideas, I'm sure as doulas, um, and as mothers as well, you've got some ideas for how you can help yourself to feel safe. And I know we're gonna go on and talk about this, Deborah, but you know, the hormones of labor and birth, the the processes, the flow of having a baby is almost identical to the processes and flow of making a baby. So if you're thinking about what's the best place to have a baby, you know, you could think, is this a situation where I could make a baby? And that is the ideal situation. And if it's not, how can you make it as intimate, as quiet, as dark, as safe as possible would be my number one take home uh, message. Oh, and I appreciate that you brought us there too, because you know, I was going there. So <laughs> what other ways, because, you know, Would you say that birth is a part of a person's intimate and sexual life? Well, I think what's extraordinary is that we, yeah, I think what's extraordinary is we even have to ask the question, to be honest, Deborah, because it happens in the sexual parts of our bodies, right? It happens in our vaginas and our vulvas, you know, like they're sexual parts of our body, our breasts are sexual parts of our body. So, you know, I think in modern birth, in order to kind of have strangers in there and have it happen in another, another context, we've had to kind of convince the population that birth is not part of our sexuality, but it is, it, it, of course it is, you know, and <laughs> some of the noises that women make in birth, you know, <laughs> can be, can sound like, like making a baby, right? And it's the same flow of hormones. It's oxytocin. We release huge amounts of oxytocin at orgasm. We re- release huge amounts of oxytocin when we push our babies out, right? The oxytocin is a hormone of sexual activity. It's a hormone of orgasm. You know, it's a hormone of breastfeeding. So, you know, it really emphasizes a continuity really of our sexual cycle. You know, we go from 
menstruation to conception to pregnancy to birth to breastfeeding and back to menstruation and it's all part of our sexuality so definitely and and, and also you know that actually peak of oxytocin at that moment of pushing some women can experience that as a literal orgasm you know the baby coming down the oxytocin peaks i mean it's the same process as having an orgasm during sexual activity so orgasmic birth is not just a fancy idea it's a, it's a physiological reality thank you my heart sings on that too and what about other ways cuz i have a lot of people talk to me about masturbation or doing things in labor that would increase their oxytocin with pleasure. What do you well, feel yeah, about no. that? Look, I'm excited to see some research in this area. Um, and I know that there is some studies being done and, you know, it's that kind of old midwives trick, you could say, like Anna Mae Gaskin, the mother of midwifery in America, she said the energy that gets the baby in can help get the baby out. And I know that you have your own orgasmic <laughs> tricks as well in labor because, you know, like when labor slows down or stops, which it often does when we're not feeling private and safe, what do we do? We give, we, we've created what I call a hormonal gap. Yeah, the, the, the individual isn't feeling safe and it's not just a woman. Like if we have a, an animal in a zoo, you know, that doesn't have their circle of elephant helpers, that's the same situation and birth gets very distorted. The processes of labor are difficult in those circumstances. So, you know, that's kind of what we've created. And it's no surprise really that labor often slows down or stops when women go to hospital, right? And then what happens, we've created a hormonal gap where oxytocin isn't being released. So we give a synthetic oxytocin to, to bridge that hormonal gap. And I know we going to talk about this in another podcast but you know why not release your own oxytocin rather than get an artificial kind that doesn't work as well as your own so you know hugging anything that makes you feel safe and private going into a small room often women will instinctively choose the smallest room they can to give birth a toilet the shower you know in, in, a, in a hospital they'll give birth under the shower you know so so that privacy and safety and you know oxytocin is the cuddle hormone you know cuddling with our partner with someone we love for some women touch, you know, it's very individual. Some women like animals. Some some women are like cats. We're solitary birthers. Some women are like elephants. They want the whole circle of elephant helpers around them. But whatever it is that makes you feel safe. But certainly hugs, touches, releases oxytocin and sexual activity, as you say. I mean, what more pleasurable way to make labor happen than to, and to stimulate yourself sexually or have a partner do it, you know, like there are studies showing nipple stimulation can help to get labor started or going, you know, in some circumstances if the woman's at an adequate state of readiness. You know, so any of those sexual activities can promote the release of their own oxytocin. And the other great thing is if you do do this, you have to make yourself private. You have to shut the door and put it down on the floor and nobody's going to come in. So you've actually, you know, done yourself a benefit in lots of ways. And of course, if you're not in a hospital, if you're before transfer or, you know, before, if you're having a baby at home, all of these things are available to you. And I know that you've, um, you've recommended that your clients take a, a vibrator to hospital. Tell us about that one, Deborah. Yes, definitely. I've really found that that's been helpful. And in two different ways, I always have to smile because if they just take it out and hold it, everybody leaves the room. So I call it the, the privacy tool because no one wants to stay to see if you're really going to use it or not. So I've had clients that didn't really use it on their clitoris, but just had it there to say we need some privacy. But I've had other people that have felt that it has been amazing, really took them from pain to pleasure. And they really felt the difference that when they were doing stimulation, all they felt was pleasure. And when they weren't, they really felt more of the challenge. What do you think about that, that difference? 
I think whatever, whatever gets you through, really. I mean, there's lots of different tools that women use. I mean, classically, we use breath, sound and movement. I mean, that's brilliant because, you know, it's, you could say, it takes your mind off the pain and, and also it can convert pain to pleasure. I mean, that's what it's about, really. You know, and the release of oxytocin actually has natural pain relieving effects. So, so that makes total sense. I mean, just going, thinking, I was thinking about my last baby I had at home here and the way that I dealt with the pain was I, every time I got a contraction, I had to have my husband right there in front of me and I looked him in the eye and I said, I love you. 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 And that released oxytocin as well, right? And it took me into this altered state. And if he wasn't there to, to receive that, it was painful. So yeah, there's lots of ways to, to create oxytocin, but sexual activity creates even more oxytocin in the brain. And that's going to, you know, stimulate the reward and pleasure centers. It's going to have these analgesic properties. It's going to put us into the calm and connection. And it's also going to release oxytocin to the uterus and help to facilitate the contractions of labor as well. But I also want to add something I didn't say previously, which is that as a neuromodulator, that one of the ways that oxytocin works in the brain is it shifts the balance in the autonomic nervous system. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the autonomic nervous system is kind of like the automatic nervous system. It's the part that is continually adjusting blood pressure, our heart rate, our skin temperature, our digestion, a whole lot of things we don't have to think about, right? It's all happening automatically. And it's generally balanced between what we call the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight or even the alertness center. Yes. There was a loud noise in the room. You get a rush of adrenaline. You'd be very alert. But even in the daytime, when you're up and alert, you have higher levels of adrenaline. Your sympathetic is a bit switched on. And then the other part of it is the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, relaxation and growth system. So that's the part that we're in when we're eating, when we're kind of lying down and relaxing after eating. Also, when we're suckling, when we're sleeping, all of those things are, are parasympathetic. And what oxytocin actually does, um, and this is part of its feel-good effect, is it shifts us from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic. So parasympathetic goes up, we feel more relaxed, we feel more calm, we often want to lie down, <laughs> and our sympathetic goes down, our fight-or-flight hormones go down. So sexual activity as well and in releasing oxytocin is also going to help with that calm and connection effect. And you know, it's a really valuable effect in labor because it is an intense experience. I mean, there's only one way out for our babies until the last, you know, 800 years, you know, with cesareans, there's only one way out. And that's through these powerful contractions of labor. So mother nature provides this help for all mammalian mothers so that it's not an excruciating experience. So there is pleasure with it. And that is oxytocin release in the brain, the calm and connection, the pain relieving and the reward and pleasure center activation right through labor, you know. And that's the great thing about our positive feedback loop. As the sensations get more intense, we get more oxytocin release in the brain. So we get more pain relief, more calm and connection. So, and as labor progresses, there's more in the brain. So all of those things happen. So, you know, if you're using sexual activity in labor, you're kind of taking a bit of a shortcut and getting yourself to higher oxytocin levels as well and, and increasing the pain relieving, the calming and connection as you describe. Yeah. And doing it with love, right? I love you. how you just said, I love you. And that's bringing that oxytocin up. Well, sorry, you've given us so much to think about. I'm sure all the listeners are like, wow, right? And I know that you'll come back and we'll talk more too, that when there are challenges in birth, you know, how are there some hormonal gaps and how can we work to fill them? But I know people today are going to say, how can I get in touch with you? Where can people find you? Um, yeah, so my website is sarahbuckley.com. I've got links to um, my hormonal physiology report, 
And if you go to the, um, all the sites and more tab, you'll also find links to all the papers that we've published so far on um, oxytocin. So we've done research on oxytocin levels in, in physiological labor and birth, oxytocin levels in breastfeeding. And now we're doing research on oxytocin levels in birth with interventions. It's called systematic reviews where we pull all the research that's been done. So we're about to um, submit the next paper. So watch this space and we'll have lots to talk about next time. As you say, hormonal gaps. No, we talked about a hormonal gap of not feeling safe and how we can fill that. So we'll talk about hormonal gaps with um, synthetic oxytocin, with epidurals and with cesareans and induction. Well, thank you so much. And to all our listeners, we'll have all Sarah's information in the show notes. So if you look just below this, you can click on her links. And thank you so much for all the research that you're doing, for all that you're continuing to learn and share with us on the importance of the hormonal physiology of birth and sex. Thanks, Deborah, And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. May all your hormones flow. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Orgasmic Birth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about pleasure in birth parenting and birth work, visit orgasmicbirth.com forward slash more for my free gifts. And please leave a review about your experience. Reviews help us to reach more people and please subscribe. Thank you.